This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And it is with somewhat mixed feelings that I welcome you to the last podcast from this particular series, not not ever from the book of Isaiah. We'll get back to Isaiah during Advent, but this is the final uh, podcast in our series, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. And I think, Sam, I've been surprised at how much I have enjoyed <laughs> the prophetic parts of Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah's like a, he's a an incredible poet and the way I mean you got to remember we're talking about somebody who's writing all this stuff 750 years before Jesus is going to be born before he takes on flesh. Mm-hmm. And it's like Tom preached this past Sunday. Um, where St. Augustine referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. I mean, it, yeah. it really feels like that. He brings out um, kind of the salvific, wonderful grace of our Savior. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome. I love Isaiah. Well, and we said several times that uh, in Isaiah, you hear the voice of Jesus. You hear mm-hmm. the voice of the servant, of the Messiah. And there's probably no place that it's more clear because Jesus himself connects the dots this week than Isaiah chapter 61, which is where we, uh, where we come to. Um, Isaiah 61 uh, starts off with, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And Jesus himself, when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read the first part of this passage that I just read from Mm -hmm. Isaiah 61, rolled it up and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it wrecked the joint. <laughs> they did not know what to make of it. But if there's anybody there who thinks that's not a prophecy of Jesus, Jesus himself told you, this is me. Yeah. I mean, right, right when he gets done, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he, what he's saying is the one that this is talking about is reading it to you. I mean, yeah. it, like you said, it would have brought the house down. Um, and and this whole idea, uh, what it, what it's talking about, um, and it, it culminates in saying that this is the acceptable year of the Lord is is an Old Testament um, time of what's what was called jubilee, and so it was when at, at the course at the end of fifty years, all the people who had gone into debt, generations that had lost their land, everything that had kind of been turned upside down. Every 50 years, it reverted back. So if your, if your dad had lost all of your property because you know he made foolish decisions or whatever, 
at the at the time of jubilee all generations their land was restored to them and it kept particular families from falling into perpetual cycles of poverty right and so when Jesus is talking about this, he says, hey, this is going to be – I'm proclaiming the, ex- the year of favor of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. And he, he's walking through what all, what all this means. And what he's saying is everything is going to be made right. This, this is the time. And what is going to be made right? Well, he's, we're going to preach the gospel to the poor. We're going to heal the broken – I'm going to heal the brokenhearted. I'm going to proclaim liberty to captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, giving liberty to the oppressed. And so the, that all of that is offered to us in the gospel. And, and in one of the ways that we probably you – know, and this is in very real terms, but it's also all spiritual conditions. And so – you know, sin impoverishes people, and he has come to preach good news to the poor. Sin breaks people's hearts, and he has come to heal those broken hearts. Sin puts people in captivity, and he has come to give them liberty. Sin brings people blindness, and he's come to open their eyes. And sin is oppressive, and he has come to bring liberty. And so in Jesus, what he's saying is, I'm the one who's going to bring all of this to you. This is going to be a permanent, once and for all time, year of jubilee, where everything is going to be restored in the sight of the Lord. And that is a promise, not just to those people who are in the synagogue at Nazareth. That's a promise to us. So we got to take those things and personalize those. You know, there was... uh the, the fact that he changed the wording uh, or or said it differently, this opening of blind eyes as opposed to uh, the opening of the prison. Um, I did a little digging into that because I was curious, and it turns out that the that the uh, the wording that Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, that is the wording in the Greek Septuagint, which mm-hmm. was that was their Old Testament Bible text um, at that time. And I said, you know, it's not possible that Jesus was confused about what should be there. He wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious that in his mind, there was something that was – there's some association between blindness and being imprisoned. Uh, And as I thought about that some more, I thought, you know, a spiritual imprisonment really is a result of spiritual blindness mm-hmm. and that how Jesus frees us from that spiritual prison is by giving us eyes, spiritual eyes that can see the truth by opening our, by opening blind eyes. Um, I just think it was, I thought it was an interesting, the fact that he reworded it a little bit, try to understand mm-hmm. why that was. Um, and I think that's probably a, a pretty good explanation of it is that prison and blindness have, in, in a spiritual application, have some connection in that regard. Um, the other thing that he did is that he stopped when he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he didn't mention the day of vengeance at, mm-hmm. when he was reading it. Um, I have felt like that's significant, that, that, that Jesus was making a point there by saying that, you know, that day of vengeance, that's still to be fulfilled. This mm-hmm. other stuff is fulfilled right now in me. The, the rest of this scroll, that's yet to come. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing, because if, if they knew 
Isaiah 61. It goes from proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, which draws your mind to Jubilee. Right. And the next one, like you're talking about, is and to bring the, you know, the, the pronounce the day of vengeance, and he doesn't go there. And vengeance is yet to be fulfilled, but it's interesting, like vengeance comes in, in two different parts. Vengeance will come on the last day, Jesus' return, when he comes to pour out his justice for all the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. But there's also going to be a day of vengeance on the cross. You know, he is going to be the one who goes to the cross and all of the wrath that I deserve for spitting in God's face, for trying to steal his throne, for making a mess of his creation, which I do every day in some sense. You know, the Lord went to the cross and the day of vengeance for me mm-hmm. happened when he was on that cross. Yeah. And so it gives – there's two options for when the day of vengeance falls for your sins. One is on the cross and the other one is in in the end when God comes to judge the living and the dead. Um, but yeah, he does not mention that here, which means that it was yet to come. It's also interesting because once we get past this statement of and the day of vengeance for our God, the remainder of the chapter, quite frankly, is relentlessly positive mm-hmm. and beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's like whatever time that he's speaking of, and and you know we talked about that coming kingdom, the now and the not yet last week when we were talking about Isaiah chapter sixty. But whatever it is that's being talked about here, he's laying this out and explaining to us that this is going to be absolute perfection and peace and comfort. Um, it's like the future that he is describing. The more that you read it the more that you should be longing for it. You know, I mm-hmm. um, I talked about this morning when we were talking on personal worship, I said it's not just that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but it's like they've set the handbasket on fire. <laughs> they got rockets blasting out the back end. They're beating each other with hammers down the ride. People trying to knock it off the rails. You know, it's just, it's this accelerant going on. Mm-hmm. And, and you read this and you're like, okay, so what is this day of vengeance all about? Well, wait a minute. To comfort all who mourn to console those who mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness. You know, I and the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. All of those things speak to me of a comfort. And when you mention this idea that that day of vengeance is also talking about the cross as well as the second coming, it starts to make a lot more sense then. You start mm-hmm. to say, oh, I understand why am I why why can I feel that comfort why why am, why am I consoled I am consoled because of the vengeance that was taken out against Jesus on yeah. the cross so so the people in the synagogue the people who are searching for faith the ones who are showing up to worship God you know it's when he omits saying that day of vengeance to them mm-hmm. you know I think what he's saying is here's the opportunity for mercy Here's the favor of God standing right in front of you, and if you receive me, then vengeance is the question that's still you know looming. Is is it going to be the vengeance that falls on me, or if you come to me, I take your vengeance, or is it going to be the vengeance that falls on you because you feel that you can stand before a holy God and that you're entitled to his favor, and you're going to find out that you're – woefully inadequate yeah. to enter heaven on your own merit. Um, and and this is 
this whole passage, one of the things that it's talking about, you know, not only in, in Luke 4 do you find Jesus saying, hey, all of this is about me. This is all fulfilled right here because the one who's saying this stuff to you is the fulfillment of it. But when you jump to, to Matthew chapter 11, it's one of my favorite stories, um, when you get real and raw about somebody who's in a crisis of faith, if you read Matthew 11, which I'd encourage you to do, what's happening is John the Baptist is now in prison. Herod has, has put him in a prison, and it's a prison that's outside of the Promised Land. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea in a prison called Machaerus, and he's going to die. He's going to be beheaded. And all of his expectations, just like all of Israel's expectations of what the Messiah was going to do, are really confusing because you have Jesus going around and telling people to take up your cross and to die, and he's not talking about geopolitical revolutions or bringing in, you know, the everlasting kingdom just yet. You know, that's that's on the earth. He's talking about heaven and, and different things like that, and so John is really confused. And if you read Isaiah sixty-one, John's like, wait a minute, the Messiah says that he's coming to proclaim liberty for the captives. The Messiah is supposed to come and break the prison doors open, and that would be really convenient for me right now, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I'm in jail outside of the promised land, and if you're the Messiah, you should be blowing these doors off. And so John the Baptist, struggling with faith, wondering, like, did I get it all wrong when I gave my endorsement to Jesus? Was I wrong? Was I off? I don't get it. I'm struggling to make sense of this faith. He sends two disciples to Jesus, and the conversations recorded in Matthew chapter 11, and listen to what Jesus responds to the disciples, because he gives the interpretive key for what this whole passage is about. He tells the two disciples, he doesn't say, John's doubting, because they come to him and they say, hey, are you really the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? Which you got to imagine is like, ooh, Jesus, that had to hurt. But Jesus doesn't say, oh, John, that doubter, he's out, you know. He says, I want you to go and tell John the things that you, that you hear and see. And then he starts quoting Isaiah 35 and 61. He says, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who are not offended because of me. And so he takes Isaiah chapter 35, which is the fulfillment of all those promises, and he takes Isaiah 61. And he puts them together, but one of the things that he changes that's in neither one of those passages from Isaiah is the dead are raised up. So all mm. the other stuff like you find in Isaiah, hmm. but when he says the dead are raised, it would have been a clue to John the Baptist, that's how your prison doors are going to break open. That is how I'm going to declare liberty for the captives. And so it's probably not the answer that John was expecting, or maybe not even the answer that John wanted, but it's a far more glorious answer because what Jesus says is not, hey, this isn't just about the physical reality of your days in a broken and fallen world. What I'm saying is all of this is going to be fulfilled in the resurrection, and I have the power to overthrow sin and death. That is how the poor will become rich, and the brokenhearted will be comforted, and the captives will be free, and the prison doors will be burst open. I'm going to overthrow a world that's enslaved to sin and death. Right. And that's – I love that, and I love the tenderness that you find from Jesus 
Because let's be honest, here's John the Baptist, who's one of the most fearless prophets <laughs> that you find in all the scriptures. I mean, he confronts anybody and everybody, you know, soldiers and Herod. And, and he's like, I'm not sure anymore. And you can just, I mean, if you've ever wrestled with doubts in your faith, I, what, John's, or what Jesus says about John to his disciples as they're walking back is he's like, there has not been a greater prophet ever born to women than John the Baptist. And this is somebody who's clinging with his fingernails, barely holding on to faith, it seems like. When they ask, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? John can't let go of Jesus, but he is struggling mightily with doubt, and Jesus responds with total compassion. And so what, what does that say for me and for others? If you're ever walking through a season where you're plagued by doubts but you just can't let go, Jesus isn't disappointed. He's not dejected or disgusted with you. He is so honored when somebody is wrestling through very real doubts and yet refuses to let go of him because right. that when, that's when faith is real and raw. When you're asking God, none of this makes sense. I don't get it, but I can't let go of you. That's real faith. Yeah. It's also, uh, we should note that God is not, uh, you know, beyond blowing up some prison doors. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> when Peter was in prison in Acts, when Paul was in prison in Philippi, uh, the Lord blew open some prison doors. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to make it sound like the Lord doesn't blow open prison doors because yeah. he can if he wants to. But, but you're we've, right. we've talked we've talked about this before in the miracles sessions. All the miracles that are done in the life of Jesus are all given just as a foretaste of what he's going right. to do on a right. broad scale in the new heavens and new earth. Right. And are also never done for his own benefit. Right. A miracle by itself is a, is a fantastical thing. It's like it's something that's unexplainable by any human means. And the other thing that's unexplainable is that somebody who could do that would only do it for other people. That's that's just as divine as the miracle itself, I think. Yeah. I, you shouldn't give me the power to do things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would not work. Well. It wouldn't work very well. It's like you'd come over to the house and you're like, okay, there's a Lamborghini in the parking lot. His house is now five stories tall. He's on the back deck with a giant tub of ice cream, and yet he's got a six-pack. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How did that happen, Mark? Well, you yeah. know. When I was when I was a teacher and I would in middle school, one of one of the doctrines of the faith that people are always reluctant to grab a hold of until you get older, then it's just obvious is that human beings and humanity is depraved. Like we're we're messy people. We're selfish by nature. We have a sin nature. And so one of the illustrations that I used to give, and I wouldn't tell them why we were doing this, but I would come in and there was an ancient. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. There was mm-hmm. an ancient myth of the Greeks called the Ring of Gyges. And it was a ring that when you put it on your finger, you went invisible. And so I, I said to them, you know, I want you to imagine that someone gave you the ring of Gyges. Now I want you, you've got one minute to do this. I want you to write down the first three things you would do having the ring of Gyges. And without exception, even the best character students in my class, you know, all of the answers were the predictable things. I would rob a bank. I would, you know, go into the girls' locker room or, you know, some all inappropriate, sinful things. And it was like, so what you're telling me is that if there were no consequences and no one would see you do it, your nature would steal, your nature would exploit, your nature would do all these things. 
And it's true. Like if if I gave you the ring of Gaijus, you're not going to be like, oh, I can anonymously go feed the poor. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. no, you you wouldn't do that. But anyway, yeah, it's good that we don't have special powers. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very good thing. Uh, it's, I I would not be a good candidate for whatever that movie was, Bruce Almighty or whatever. <laughs> yeah, would not have gone well with me there either. So, you know, and I also think that it's very cool how this particular passage. When it talks about things like giving them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, mm-hmm. it's like everything about that speaks of comfort to me. Um, you know, this idea of beauty for ashes. Well, you know, and and now my – maybe you know, there's a deeper interpretation here, but I'm just looking at it as being sort of this phoenix-like resurrection from what's been burned down. It's like you look at, you look at a pile of ashes and you see it's dark, it's, it's, it's crisp, it's done, it's burnt, and yet the Lord finds a way to make something beautiful out of that. Um, this idea of the garment of praise. All these talks about garments and robes and things like that. You know, I, it's almost like I can feel that hug of wearing mm-hmm. that garment. Um, I, I think there's a reason that the Lord didn't say, I'm giving you the headband of praise. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like there's something more, you know, he wants you to understand the enveloping nature of what mm-hmm. he's offering us. Um, yeah, and and all of these, and when you get to verse 3 and it says, you know, we, we know beauty for ashes, and in English, I... I almost like that translation better than what's behind the actual Hebrew, but but the word there for beauty, it's a beautiful turban or a beautiful headdress. And the idea was all of this is is turning you from people who are in mourning, right? You live in a country, you live in a world where everything is going down, and you walk around defeated. What would people do if they were in mourning or if they were in deep repentance? In the ancient world, you would repent in sackcloth and ashes. And so what does that mean? You take this sackcloth, which is this this ugly bag that you stored things in that was scratchy and itchy and uncomfortable and you cut holes in it for your arms, I guess, and you wore around a big sackcloth and then you would dump ashes on your head and it was basically saying, I deserve death. So you're throwing dust, which was always emblematic, or ashes, which is always emblematic of death on yourself saying, I deserve death. It was humbling, and you put on the sackcloth, and you're, you look gaunt, and your skin, when you were in mourning, you wanted to look you know, lifeless, very drab. And so in this, God is talking about appearance. So he says, I'm giving you a, a beautiful turban on your head instead of the ashes. So instead of throwing ashes on your head, now I'm giving you a beautiful turban, which to us we go, I don't want a beautiful turban. But in the ancient world, what that meant was you were regal. You were of nobility. You were somebody that was to be looked up to. You are triumphant. You are a ruler. And so don't walk around defeated because now you've got this beautiful turban on. Don't walk around looking gaunt, you know, like you're just in mourning and and you're pale and ashy on, on your face. But instead, you've got the oil of joy that's anointing you. It's making your face vibrant. You're shining. You have a garment of praise now instead of a spirit of heaviness. And in the Hebrew, that word for heaviness literally is dull. It has no color. It's drab. It's 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 like a. It goes from black and white to vivid colors. And so, what God is saying here is, no, no, no. I've come to console those who are in mourning, and I'm going to change your garments entirely. You're going to go from head down, sulking, eeyore people to just 
beautiful and dazzling and joyful and radiant. He's changing our clothing. And that's one thing. Like in the New Testament, the Old Testament, what you'll find is that when people change their circumstances throughout the Old Testament, they also change their clothing so often. That's one of the patterns you'll find. In the New Testament, our salvation is repeatedly called clothing. Mm-hmm. It's a covering. Yep. We're being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians talks about how we put on, you know, you can almost feel the hug. It's remaking you from the top of your head over your entire body, your full identity is being transformed from somebody who's been defeated to someone who's now gloriously triumphant. It's mm-hmm. really cool language. Isaiah's painting a picture here. You know, one of the things I always do um, when I'm studying the passage is I'll look at it in all the different English translations. It's just kind of a natural habit of mine. And I always get a kick out of how they always want to use a different word than everybody else used. <laughs> and so you get all these synonyms for it. Like one of them was beautiful headdress. Mm-hmm. One of them was a turban. One of them was. But my favorite was the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible that referred to it as a garland. I'm kind of like all of a sudden they had this idea of God putting a lay around my neck or something, you know. But um, the you know the the crown of beauty. Well, here's a garland of. Uh, yeah, it's very clearly talking about what somebody throws on top of their head. Right, <laughs> a garland. I don't know that that works. I, so I well. don't know about that. <laughs> so um, verse four goes on to say, and they shall be. Wait, 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 wait! Before you yeah. go on, sure. That where it talks about they will be called trees of righteousness, the uh-huh. planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I just – I love where this is coming from, um, partly because all throughout Isaiah, one of the metaphors that he keeps using um, – Isaiah 11 is really famous and it talks about how the, the, the Messiah – is going to come from the stump of Jesse. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it uses that language is it's like, you know, we used to be this great mighty forest, but now everything has been leveled to where even Jesse, who is David's father, everything is leveled. It's been cut down. And then it says a shoot a, a, a shoot will grow out of the stump of Jesse. Or in Isaiah 53, he refers to Jesus as a shoot that grows out of dry ground. So you're imagining a desert, but there's just this one little one little source of life that, that's going to grow. And now all of a sudden, because he has grown and he has accomplished his mission, now all of a sudden what Isaiah has been describing is kind of this barren desert where there's no life, but just this one shoot that comes up. Once the shoot accomplishes his mission, now all of a sudden, guess what? We may be called the trees of righteousness. And so the kingdom of God, this new Jerusalem is now like just exploding with new life in all these trees. It's no longer stumps and desert, (laughs) you know. It's trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. He has planted all of us and grown us up and and made us beautiful for his glory. And I just I love how Isaiah is using all these word pictures. He's such a good poet, but he's using all these word pictures that if you follow through the book, you see like, oh my goodness, everything's changing. Now all of a sudden, the way that you're to to see the kingdom of God is like this forest where these mighty oaks of righteousness are now, you know, owning the land. Um it's just a cool picture. Yeah. And that it's the planting of the Lord that he would be glorified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So verse 4 says, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the ruined cities, 
the desolations of many generations. What's it talking about with the ruins and the desolations here? Other than the fact that I did, by the way, if you read personal worship this week, folks, I correctly identified this is Hebrew poetry because it repeated itself. There you go. It does. <laughs> I'll, I'll get it down eventually. It's like, you see that kind of repetition? You're like, ah, that's Hebrew poetry. That part must be important. Yeah, they're drilling it under your head by, yeah. with that repetition. You find it a lot. But one of the things that we do, and, and it'll make this – it doesn't bring out the beauty of what Isaiah is communicating is when it says you'll rebuild the old ruins. Some of the other translations use ancient ruins. Well, I went and did a study of, of the word that's used there, which is olam, and it's translated as ancient or old, and sometimes it can be. But there's 437 times that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. And just so you understand – 265 times it's translated forever. 59 times it's translated everlasting. It's translated perpetual or forevermore or ever. So the idea is the vast majority, almost 90% of the time when that word is used, it's talking about something that is everlasting. It's eternal. It's, it, it has no end, right? And so it's not rebuilding ancient ruins. It's rebuilding everlasting ruins, so what is that getting at? And then it says, they shall rise up the former desolations, and that Hebrew word former is most commonly translated first. And they try to fix it because they want you to think of Jerusalem, but that I don't think – now, you can disagree with me, but this is my take on this passage. It's not talking about the ruins necessarily of old Jerusalem. It's talking about the ruins of the earth going all the way back to the garden. God had this everlasting plan, this everlasting temple that he wanted to rebuild, or wanted to build with man going out and transforming the whole earth into a garden. And at the fall, it all fell into ruins. It all fell into desolation. It was the first desolation. It was the, it was the, the, the ruins that go back to God's everlasting plan from the beginning. And so this mission is not just about rebuilding old Jerusalem. It's about building the new Jerusalem and repairing something that goes all the way back to the beginning. He is, he is fixing the fall, mm -hmm. and they shall repair ruined cities and, listen, the desolation of many generations. So it's, it's, it keeps pointing out that these are ancient, everlasting, perpetual ruins, and it gives you the sense this is a cosmic restoration Mm. not just of one city. Mm. Well, it does make sense because it's it's talking about that future kingdom that is the bookend. It's like God created the world and it was very good. And then we got involved and it was not so good anymore. <laughs> and then yeah. he's going to come back and make it very good again. And these are the, going to be the bookends to what humanity did to squander uh, the beauty of God's creation. So. So verse 5, strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. I like the fact that when it calls this into place, talking about this language involving flocks and plowmen and vine dressers, it's very agrarian and agricultural. Um, but more than that, it's like it's, it's life that's like connected organically to the world around it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I've kind of had this question a few times, and I think we've talked about it. I've talked about it with other people, too. Of You know, there's times when you try to imagine, hey, what is it going to be like? You know, what's that, that kingdom of glory in the, in the far future? What's it going to, what are the new heavens and earth? What are they going to be like? 
Well, I'm guessing there's probably not going to be any Call of Duty in Fortnite. We're not going to need those <laughs> um, video games for distractions. But one of the things I like to do is I like to look back at, you know, what it tells us about how things were in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things back there was that everything was this sort of effortless synergy with the world around them. The Lord's like, you've got all these different choices that you can eat from. I've provided all these different plants for you for food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the, the animals were, were at peace with each other and at peace with the people. There weren't, you know, they, when we talk about the lion laying down with the lamb, that idea that there's, there weren't these apex predators that were going around eating everything. Um, it was this time of complete peace and this time of sort of, of an easy life in, in contact with the Lord. So I just kind of like this language going back here saying again that it's involving flocks and mm-hmm. plowmen and vine dressers that God is again giving us that sort of organic, full of life sort of picture. Now the question is going to be, who are the strangers? Uh, they're people that are not – that you don't know they're gentiles they're people from faraway lands people that prior to this point you know isaiah is constantly talking about how you know the messiah is going to come and he's going to be a light to the gentiles and he is going to draw people from this outer darkness this thick darkness out in the world he's going to draw them to the source of salvation that has come out of the people of israel namely jesus and so they're going to come in. And so the idea that Isaiah is talking about is all of a sudden foreigners, these strangers, people that hitherto, you know, we keep them out. We keep them at arm's length. They're going to come and they're going to be part of our society. They're going to be feeding the flocks and, and being plowmen and vine dressers. And so this idea of, of you know, you know, the covenant is only for people of this particular bloodline, God is blowing up. Yeah. And he's saying our nation is going to be filled with people from all nations. So if 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 I follow, you know, the, the, the thread here from verse 5 to verse 6, where he's talking about strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. So there the Lord is saying there will be some who are from outside of your bloodline. There's going to be some that were mm-hmm. not part of Israel that are brought in. So that in verse 6, when it says, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord, they shall call you the servants of our God, you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Is that something that God is speaking, in in your opinion, that God is speaking to Israel there, Mm -hmm. saying that in this future kingdom, you, Israel, you, the bloodline, will have some degree of special standing as being the priests of the Lord, Mm -hmm. or is it meaning something else? Yeah, and I think you find that when you get to to Romans in chapter 11 and where he flat out starts talking about how he is going to call in the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. He's not – he's talking about a a national bloodline, a people. Right. And they are going to come and and be – made better, made more fervent in their faith because the Gentiles come in. Um, and I think that's might be what it's getting at here. Mm. But there's going to be this – you're going to the, – the, all the glories of the kingdoms of the world are going to be enjoyed by the people of God. So geopolitical territories do not determine what Israel enjoys because reality is there are people who are now – the people of God from every nation under heaven. And so the best of, of the talents from all over the world, the best wealth, everything else from all over the world now is a part of a kingdom that does not have geopolitical boundaries. And so you, covenant people of God, are going to, to gain the best fruit mm-hmm. 
of all the nations under heaven. You know, and I ask that question because when I was reading the next verse, which is verse 7, where the Lord is saying, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. When I read that, you know, therefore, in their land, that mm-hmm. sort of drew my mind to this idea that he was speaking to national Israel at that point. And I've already mm-hmm. confessed my weird sort of, you know, eschatological mishmash in my head from years of different theological systems. But one of the things I have my radar up to anytime I'm reading in the Old Testament is, is God talking to his people Israel? Is he talking to his people the church? Is he talking to his people this all of us? Who you know who is he talking to? Um, and it seemed to me like he was talking to Israel here. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the reasons why you immediately do that is because you see the word Gentiles in the translation, and you think, well, if you're not a Gentile, which is people who are not of the bloodline of Israel, then you must be. It must be talking about the Jews, but the the Hebrew word behind Gentiles, and it might be, it could be very well that that's what it's getting at, but it's helpful also to know that the Hebrew word for Gentiles, goyim, is is nations. And so it's like, hey, you, all the nations are going to bring their riches to you and their glory and the glory of every nation under heaven you're going to boast. And the church can say that today. So would it be true of the church? Would it be true of Israel? I would say that the church consumes the riches of all the nations, right? It's every nation under heaven contributes to the church mm-hmm. and the people of God. And those, if you want to get technical, the way that Paul talks about it, you know, Gentiles who believe in Jesus have been grafted in. Mm-hmm to spiritual Israel. And so all of the promises that you see in the Old Testament, the promises that were given to Abraham, we share in because, as Paul says, we've been, you know, some branches are broken off who reject Jesus and others are grafted in to the people of God and we share in those promises. But they're like, again, the reason why this gets confusing is there really is something, according to Paul, that holds on special promises to the people of the bloodline. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that you know, whatever it is, we'll see how that all works itself out <laughs> at some hmm. point, uh, and we'll understand it all then. It's like you'll, it, at some point, I anticipate being able to perhaps even say to Paul himself, "Oh, that's what you were talking about." <laughs> so, what do you think? What's, what's your take on it? Um, I, you know, I have always sort of felt like there were certain promises in the Old Testament mm-hmm. that are very difficult to understand if you're not talking to the bloodline, mm-hmm. um, and so I've believed that there are. Pretty much what you were just saying, if I understood you correctly, is that some of these things that are being said by God are being said to that bloodline, to those people who live in that spot, on that land. And, you know, when it does, when it says Gentiles, that is, like you say, Goyim is nations, but it is other nations. In other words, mm-hmm. Goyim referred to people that were not part, that not this nation, all the other nations. So mm-hmm. it certainly does mean others you know that sort of thing so i have i would say that this was god speaking to israel in speaking to the bloodline which is which is kind of where i was thinking he was going at with this um instead of your shame you shall have double honor instead of the confusion they shall rejoice in their portion that can that talk about the portion and having double honor seemed to me to be the kind of language that was used when talking about the inheritance of a firstborn and so, again, I'm thinking that when we're talking about God's people, yeah, that's true. the bloodline were the firstborn. They, mm-hmm. were the, they were the first of God's people, and we came into that. 
So I felt sort of like, you know, but then, of course, I got to verse eight (laughs) and I questioned myself because in verse eight, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their works in work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. So as soon as I saw that I hate robbery, my mind immediately went to, well, if they are, if somebody's something stolen from them and you catch the perpetrator, the the law was that you had to restore double. If I if I came and took your goat and they found me with your goat, I had to give you your goat back and give you another goat on top of that. So it was restoration and recompense for your for what you did. So then I thought, well maybe the Lord is saying in some sense, you know, my people have been robbed of something and I'm gonna restore that to them with that double portion. Um I don't know. I see. Yeah, I my problem is, is when I read one verse, there's always another verse, and then I end up questioning <laughs> myself on the previous verse. Yeah, yeah. So when you go through the prophets, one thing is is very clear that he is he is going to take the nations and he is going to graft them into his own people. Right. Um, Hosea, who wrote even before Isaiah, he writes. He, he says, "I will say to those who were not my people, you." Are my people, right? And they shall say, "You are my God." And so he's he's talking about that. You see, in Jesus, where he talks about the kingdom are being taken away from some of these, you know, Jewish religious leaders and given to another. So there's definitely a bit of grafting in, and it does get confusing. I wish it would. Sp- I wish there was one word for you know bloodline <laughs> and others, you know, for for the people who come by faith. But we're left to. To question and ponder. Yeah, and I mean, Paul's very clear when he says that we're Abraham's children by faith. You Mm -hmm. know, we are are the seed of Abraham by faith. So they're very definitely, there's a spiritual bloodline, if you will, and then there's a physical bloodline. It's like there are those that, there are those to whom God gave the land. And that means something. That land meant Mm -hmm. something. It was a big, big part of his relationship with them. It was, it was key. To, I mean, it was the whole reason behind the year of Jubilee. You know, when, when, when I was studying the year of Jubilee for this week and I was reading from Leviticus 25, it's very interesting because the whole premise of the year of Jubilee and this restoring of the land was mm-hmm. that it doesn't belong to you. It's not your land. It's yeah. God's land. And he makes that point. He's like, this land is mine. You know, yeah. I'm letting you have it, but it's my land. Yeah, he says, you're just sojourners here. This is my land. You're tenants. And the other interesting thing, because I think that people, when they hear us describe something like the year of Jubilee, boy, now I'm I'm sorry, folks, I've just took you back 45 minutes in this podcast. But (laughs) when you talk about something like the year of Jubilee, I think there's a natural reaction that some people have to that saying, that doesn't seem fair. If you sell me your property, and I now own that property to have to give it back to you, that's not fair. That's not how it worked. Um, and as a matter of fact, Leviticus is very clear about that. When you would sell property to another family, because you were always sell, you were, if it wasn't in your family, it was to another family that 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 was part of God's people. And your how much you would charge for that was based on how many years they would have use of it mm-hmm. to the next jubilee. So the best way to describe it is it really wasn't a sale of land as much as it was a lease of land. And the Lord even says, you shall not do wrong to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, it's going to be fair because you fear me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you do it fairly. So the year of Jubilee was, was, and yet, as you say, it was a way to make sure that they didn't fall into generational poverty because when they would reclaim the land, in my reading of what happened in that history, very frequently they would then turn and lease it back to the same people again. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it's like, okay, every so often, because this was your land historically, you're going to get paid for it every 50 years again for the use of that land. And it's going to prevent, it's the way that God sees that you're taken care of as, as part of his people. But he made no bones about it. The land was his, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So anyway. And, and in a way, it was, it was providing kind of a social safety net. It was. It was uh, very so- much so. It offends my my libertarian capitalist senses. I know, I know. <laughs> but but it really was. So you yeah. know, the, we've talked about this before. How the Bible comes, and it's absolutely about private property. It's absolutely about working for what you get, and 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 it it you know we get private property rights straight out of the scripture. But at the same time, they're commanded not to harvest everything to the fringes to allow the poor to take. You know, glean from the fields of leftovers, and you have the year of jubilee, and so there's a lot of things that are written into the law that offer protections for the poor. It's right. not just dog eat dog. Um, it's just right. it's inc- it's it balances this wonderful system of justice and mercy in the law. It's it's really wonderful. I love that. What I've given to you, I've given to you to have as your place. But don't misunderstand it. When I tell you you have to give it back, it's because it wasn't yours to begin with. Yeah. Um, and that's the difference between that and what you what we were talking about there with our libertarian sensitivities. <laughs> God's not coming along and saying, Sam, you have to give back this piece of property that, that, that you bought. You don't have to t- deed it over to the church every 50 years. Um, he was talking about that specific land that he right. specifically had given those people. Yep. And he had from Mount Sinai. He was telling Moses and yeah. – you know, at least when Moses is writing Deuteronomy, he's talking about partitioning it out among all the tribes. So, yeah, that was that was God's. Yeah, he has the deed. <laughs> and, and back to verse seven, where it talks about him giving the double honor. I I really do think that that's talking about inheritance. And I think okay. one of the one of the reasons why I think that is, um, you know, it talks about them receiving, you know, rejoicing in their portion. portion so it right, makes yeah. you think inheritance. But the thing that I love about this is if you you know you read the rest of Isaiah, one of the things that he's repeatedly bringing up is the people of God who have fallen into sin and now all of a sudden everything's falling apart on them, is they're going, where's God? Is does he still love us? Is he our father? And so in this, you not only you're not only given the impression, oh no, 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 he is still your father and he is going to give you the rights of his firstborn. Um, yeah. you, you inherit that. So you're going to get – in the scriptures, the firstborn always got the double inheritance like you said, and now they're getting double honor. They're going to mm-hmm. rejoice in their portion. Uh, the land, they'll possess double, like everything about them. Everlasting joy will be theirs, which is kind of cool if you're getting an inheritance from God. Well, his attributes are infinite. And so guess right. what? Your joy is everlasting. Right. And so it's, it's, it's absolutely putting to rest – any question that they have of is God still our Father? Yeah. You know, in our shame, can we still call Him Father? And He's like, "Are you kidding? You're my firstborn. I'm, you know, at the expense of the Son of God. I'm now letting you share in His inheritance. You get all the honors of the firstborn because of what He's done for you." Yeah. Um, and I think there's there's it's also very important when you read through this that you see things like 
everlasting joy in verse eight, everlasting covenant, as you were talking about earlier when it was talking about the uh, rebuilding the old ruins that it was rebuilding the eternal ruins, mm-hmm. you know, rebuilding these eternal cities. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we have as a as a sort of human wisdom, I, I, those things are ridiculous, like Aesop's fables sometimes. But one <laughs> of them is nothing lasts forever. And it's usually there to tell us about, you know, you may think you have it well now, but don't be too happy because nothing lasts forever. You know, and with the Lord, it's true that that the things that don't last forever are the bad things. Mm-hmm. You know, God's like, look, I'm going to get rid of all of the suffering, all of the sickness, all of the sorrow. What you're going to be left with? An eternal covenant that brings mm-hmm. eternal that brings everlasting joy in cities that are eternal. It's like the the Lord is very plain about the fact that yeah, the good things in him will last forever. So some yeah. things do last forever. <laughs> yeah, and one of the other things in this in this particular verse that I when I read it I thought, what in the world does that mean? Is when he says I hate robbery for burnt offering. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the areas where the New King James kind of goes out on its own. It's but the the Hebrew word behind that burnt offering is everywhere it's translated malice or injustice or you know something evil. I hate robbery and injustice is usually the way that it's translated. But the burnt offering, I don't know where the New King James came from with that. Uh, maybe you do. They, well, they, they got it from the King James. <laughs> so they, they chose <laughs> to stick. That's a simple answer. Yeah, well, no, they stole it to kick with the King James. And, the, and yeah. that the guys that came up with um, burnt offering, they were, that was 1611. We'd have to ask them when we uh, get to heaven. Um, verse 9, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. Um, again, a beautiful promise of descendants that it's like this is going to continue. The offspring is going to continue. You're going to be a people that last forever. It feels very like like he's just declaring the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Yeah. You know, you go all the way back to Genesis 12 and God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you descendants that are you know n- numerous, and I am going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what he means is I'm going to allow the Messiah to come through your line. And all these promises that were given to Abraham, you just see gloriously fulfilled in Isaiah. It's like yeah. hundreds of years of waiting, and Isaiah's announcing it here, done. Yeah. Done. Yeah. So verses 10 and 11, the chapter concludes with what I think, Sam, is a, is a shift in voice. It's like up totally. to till this point, it's been the Lord's anointed one speaking to us, telling us what he's going to do, what's been accomplished by him. And then in verses 10 and 11, I feel like it's, it's us. It's the redeemed. It's Zion speaking back to the Lord. Um, and it reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's really one of those ah moments. (laughs) Yeah. And it's what it's doing is, you know, God is coming to these people, remember, that have ashes on their head. 
that yes. are in mourning, who feel desperate, who feel forsaken, who are wearing the sackcloth, who, you know, and so now God has come and said, whoa, hold on a minute. Let me tell you your new reality. Let me tell you what I've purchased for you. And now this, like you said, is Isaiah giving voice to how we should respond to this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which in faith should be, you know what, I'm taking the ashes off my head. I'm no longer defeated anymore because of what Jesus has done for me. And so, you know what, I'm going to rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul is going to be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And there's this this kind of defiance where the world, you know, what it ensnares us and it makes us feel defeated. I do this all the time where it's like you look at the circumstances and and what do you do? You're you're really walking around defeated. You have dust on your head and the sackcloth and and what this is doing is saying, "No, no, no. You be defiant of how gloomy this world is because you live in an in an alternate Reality, in some sense, you live in, with with eyes open to the spiritual truth of what Jesus has accomplished for you, and now we should walk around rejoicing, being joyful, being dressed not in drab garments that everybody looks and says, "Oh, you know, we're just defeated people," but we're radiant garments of salvation, and uh, we have robes of righteousness. And then this idea, he brings in the most intimate of metaphors, this idea of the bridegroom and his bride. And so we got to remember who our bridegroom is. He's decked out, man. He is he is shining like the sun with all of his radiance, and his bride has adorned herself with jewels. Like, it's inviting us to see ourselves. And by the way, Isaiah's talking to a group of people. You have to remember things are desperately bleak for the people living in Jerusalem when Isaiah's writing this. And what he's saying is, stop. <laughs> like, here's, here's your reality. This is what you can bank on because of what the Messiah, the Savior, has done for you. Walk around with joyful, victorious, you know, shining like we talked about last week. Arise and shine so that the dark world, the thick darkness, can see you penetrate through that darkness and they come to you and want to know what's different. What hope do you have? Why are you shining? Um, And gosh, I wish I was better at that. Mm. You know, the people that I've known who, and there have been a few people, and I'm not one of them, by the way, but there have been a few people I've known who have been able to maintain that joy in the face of everything. Mm-hmm. And invariably, when I've talked to them about, why are you always so happy? The answer is the same thing. This isn't the world I'm living for. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? You know, we get so caught up in how bad things are in this world, and we forget that we are here for the merest flicker of an instant that you can't even measure on the scale of eternity. We're here and we're gone that fast. The world that we are living for is an everlasting world that is going to be perfect, that is going to be filled with righteousness and praise, that is going to be peaceful. And that's the world that we're living for. And if that doesn't mm-hmm. fill you with joy, maybe you don't believe that that world is coming. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, so I struggle with that myself. It's self-confessional time. I'm like, why doesn't it yep. make me happier? You know, and, and it's like, I just, I let things just, you know, make me cranky about the way the world is today. And I should, I just need to take a step back and go, Lord, mm-hmm. you know, 
so and and so what can we do is from that abundance then we offer that grace to the world that we live in today so that they can enter that world tomorrow yeah and you know I struggle with this because you get my rants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, but, if either one of us gets hit by a bus, the other person has to delete the text message thread. That's the rule. Yeah, that, that's, that would be absolutely necessary. Yes, yes. Um, But, you know, here's, here's where my struggle comes in because I'll hear that, just like practical application for myself here. I – love thinking about Jesus, and I love thinking about heaven, and I love thinking about all these spiritual realities. And I, man, I just, they they lift my souls, right? And then I turn on the news, oh. or I get a text oh. message, oh. and it draws me right back into that thick darkness, Doesn't right it? back into oh. the mire. And it's like, okay, well, I have to, I feel like, I, okay, well, if I'm going to do something about how awful this world is, I've got to leave these thoughts to go tend to how absolutely awful the world is and engage it, you know, at this level. And I love something that C.S. Lewis said because, you know, people get – if you just stay thinking about heaven all the time, you know, you've heard that that expression, which I hate and I think it's wrong. Um, you can become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I don't yes. even know if that's popular anymore, but it used to be a thing. It is not popular anymore, but I grew up in the era when it was quoted a lot. So, yeah. yes, I know it but well. I love what C.S. Lewis said on this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And man – I just – I feel that as being true. You don't stop thinking about what Christ has accomplished and what your inheritance is when you go to engage this world. If you do it, it will suck the joy out of you instantaneously. <laughs> you have to take the hope of that world and go into the midst of the darkness and shine for the sake of the people who don't know about that world. You don't ignore the mess. You don't ignore the injustices. But you go and do your very best to stay mindful about what your reality is so that you can shine for those who have no idea that there's a better way, Mm -hmm. a better hope. And that is something I wished I was better at because I'm really good at focusing on heaven until I'm in the muck and the mire. And and then it's like oh, I got to do something, yep. and so it's like I take my hand off of the the hope of heaven to grab hold of the muck, and you yeah. can't do that. You will have the greatest impact on the darkness of this world if you keep everything anchored in your hope for the next one. Mm. Doesn't mean you have to ignore it, right? Hmm. Well, that's certainly something that I need to hear <laughs> because I'm right with you on that. Me with oh, my it's hard. I, me with my iPhone. What now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. Yeah. I do love that. So verse 11, uh, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. My mind when I read that, Sam, went right back to um, to the garden, yep. to, to when the Lord was telling Adam that because of this – I'm going to, you know, the ground is going to be cursed and you, and it's going to be a struggle and it's going to be hard and you're going to get thorns from the ground and it's going to make you sweat and toil. And it really sounds to me like God was saying, I am reversing the curse mm-hmm. that was put against the ground. And and one of the, I think one of the things that I 
that blew my mind when I first started studying Genesis is when when you you find the very beginning of creation and you have the Garden of Eden. I just assumed that the whole world was amazing and beautiful and already cultivated, but that's not the picture that's given. He God plants the Garden of Eden, he puts man and woman in it, and then he says, Okay, now you go forward and you subdue the earth. And what he's saying is, okay, this garden is a limited territory. Your mission, Adam and Eve, is I want you to participate in my act of creation by taking this cultivated, beautiful garden and to go subdue the rest of the world, which means it was unsubdued or not subdued prior to that. And so the mission that God gives from man to mankind from the beginning is to spread the garden, to spread the design of God, to spread this beautiful paradise over all the earth. And in this chapter, it's like Isaiah saying, hey, we have the remedy to turn this dark earth that's barren with its dry ground, that's desert. Now we know how to grow oaks of righteousness. We know how to turn this barren world into a fertile garden. So now go forth and the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. He's taught us, okay, the world fell with Adam and Eve. Now I'm showing you this is how you can return the earth to a garden. It has to come through the gospel. And that's good marching orders right there. We take this message of good news of what God has done for humanity, and we want to take the garden to spread it all over the earth so that the curse is overthrown, and that's the marching order that Isaiah closes this chapter with. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good word, and the clock on the wall says we have to let that stand as our last word. <laughs> so we hope that you've enjoyed yourself, folks, that uh, this time has been profitable for you. I hope you've enjoyed this whole series, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. Um, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to see the messages that were preached on Sunday morning that went along with this, um, you can find those on our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, Vista church.com or you can find them in our free rio vista church smartphone app if you go to the uh, apple app store or the google play store and you search for rio vista community church you'll find our free app there you can find all the sermons from this series there as well uh, and also join us in personal worship as we work through these passages together um, we'll be we're we're taking a step away and moving to a series that we're doing, a series of messages that we're doing in cooperation with Church United over the next few weeks here in Broward County. Uh, but then we'll be coming back with our Advent series. And I'm told we're going to rejoin some of Isaiah again. So that's going to be mm-hmm. part of what we're doing there. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. You can find all the back episodes of Out of Water there at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Sam and I'll be back next week with a new topic, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.